0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Speaking with words of truth and reason. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, podcast by Christadelphian Video. Bible truth is objective and cannot be moved. It clearly delineates between right and wrong as it is with God. It is logical, rational and discerning, while employing various genres to clearly convey its message. Finding the truth of God will influence how we see the world and act accordingly. Building our lives upon the foundation of Christ and the Apostles will bring future everlasting rewards to all who choose to follow that way.
1: The quotation or the words themselves or the title comes from um, Acts chapter 26, verse 25. It's uh, when Paul is standing before uh, King Agrippa. And Festus the governor the Roman governor of the province where he was and Festus says to Paul much learning has made you mad such was his testimony that if what Paul was saying was true then the world was mad but that can't be the case therefore Paul himself must be mad But Paul responds in this way in verse 25, he says, quoting from the New King James Version, Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak with words of truth and reason. King James Version says soberness, but the word really has this idea of um, reason. The word means itself sanity um, or self-control, certainly the opposite of madness. The biblical concept of truth and reason remains as important today as it was in those days. The testimony that Paul was delivering and the testimony of the early Christians was based upon a revelation of truth from God and it was argued with reason, not madly, not in some crazy fashion, not with all sorts of mad claims, but it was presented in a reasonable measured way that could be understood by all who listened to the message. The biblical concept remains today as important as it was in those days, but we seem to be living in a world that's gone mad. Many have become unhinged because, well perhaps because, they become unanchored to the truths that have been passed down from the Bible, Biblical norms which have been passed down um, through society. Public figures can no longer even define what defines a woman or a man. Even though it's written on a birth certificate, they won't publicly say so. There's madness in the public forum, and it seems to be all through Western culture. Truths are increasingly being treated as subjective rather than objective. Now, if you're not used to those terms, a subjective truth means it's a matter of opinion, a matter of taste. So I might say to you, well, red cars are better than white cars, or chocolate's better than vanilla. Um, I'm spiritual, not religious. Those are all subjective truths. They're just opinions that I have that may well be true for me, but may not be for you. However, there is something called there are things called objective truths. Objective truths are unmoving. They are like mountains. They are anchored and can't change. My opinion doesn't change them. My opinion doesn't change the law of gravity. If I stand on a building and jump off it, I might say, "Well, gravity doesn't exist." Well, a little while later, it's going to prove me wrong. Well, that's the fact with objective truths. They are unchanging. They are rock solid. Two plus two equals four. All men are mortal. In the Bible, God's word, his revelation of his will and purposes, that's what the word is, are described in terms that define objective truths. They aren't simply open to opinion. I can choose this part or I reject that part. It's not just the opinions of men. It makes the claim quite regularly that these words are objective truths, unchanging. They are not subject to man's opinion. They don't change whether people agree or disagree. They are as unchanging as the laws of nature or the laws of physics. This generation we live in seems to be confusing these ideas Today, people seem, see such things as a person's sex, what is moral, what is right and wrong, um, through the lens of perhaps of various experts, through the media, through all sorts of perspectives. But these don't come from God, they come from the subjective opinions of thought leaders in our society. The outcome is that objective truths are treated as subjective truths, as opinions or choices. As a result, the word of God, the word of God's will is discarded as irrelevant and just some left over from a more primitive time. Now, I can personally identify with this subject myself Many years ago, when I first began to associate with Christadelphians, I didn't come from that background, I was impressed by their approach to seeking to understand the Bible. That is a general approach that used words of truth and reason, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, taking the word as sacrosanct, as spoken, trying to understand what it says, not trying to understand what it says through the lens of my taste or society's tastes however we seem to be being influenced and pressured on every side to conform to the world's viewpoint to see things from their perspective what's right and wrong what's moral what's not what's an acceptable way to live what's not and perhaps it's just because technology has given us easy access to commentaries and opinions um, presented to us by the plethora of the, the great number of opinions out there um, from people. What it does is it presents us with a challenge, um, for example, that we can be reliant upon the opinions of others, particularly scholars and experts of various persuasions. Well, smart people like that, how could they get it wrong how can little or me understand what it's saying? Perhaps we um, we often get influenced by scholars who seem to synthesize what the Bible says with worldly philosophy and/or science, and that can cause us to see things perhaps differently. Perhaps there's a reliance on the worldview, the world, the view that it's expressed by the world itself on questions of sin and morality. There are many ways to look at this subject of truth and reason, but tonight we're only going to be able to focus on a couple of them because we just won't have enough time to cover the whole subject. The idea of what's logically true, what's a, a false set of logics, how we can reason factually and faithfully. We live in a world... As I said that it 's increasingly be influenced by some sort of um, almost like it's an agenda that's coming from certain um, parts of society one of the problems that's occurred in recent times is is that experts and educated people they have a very narrow very specialized field of knowledge uh, one of our members at Yaguna was, is studying, did his PhD in archaeology, and he was telling me what they call as the pimple of knowledge, as if there's a whole field of knowledge like a pumpkin and there's a little pimple on the side and that's the expertise that he has to, to write his PhD, has to be an expert in. Well that's what seems to be occurring in our society itself. People are losing general knowledge of life and of experience, and they're more focused upon this pimple of expertise. and That may well work as, 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 a, as a great way to learn a particular field of knowledge, but it doesn't give one an overview of the whole subject. Well, that's the issue we come to when we come to try and understand what the Bible says and how we ought to interpret it, which is really what the body of our subject is about tonight. One thing we need to take into account is the idea of narrative. Now, it's quite common nowadays, if you listen to the media, people arguing a narrative. Now, a narrative describes the story, an account of a series of related events or experiences, and how you frame them or stitch them together. You can see that all the time when politics occur, and one form of media might support one politician or another, look at the pictures of the politician they have up there. Have they got a scowl on their face or have they got a smile? How have they presented them? Well, that's how narratives are formed. You create an image, and then what you do is you find the evidence that may well support that narrative. Narratives are important because they control and influence how we understand the world we live in. For example, the official narrative, whatever that might be on any particular subject, is often controlled. Apparently, Western governments over the last few decades have now established nudge units. I don't know if you've heard this. They have nudge units in all Western governments which are designed to influence public beliefs and behaviours and nudge society to agree with whatever the government policy may be on one particular um, thing or another and by working hand in hand with media because the governments often present the media with the facts whoops the facts that have been approved by them then they repeat that and you see it you see fascinating compilations in the media where News anchors not only use the same words, but the same phrases and the same images to present the same subject. There seems to be a lack of criticism or critique or perhaps, um, one, perhaps a questioning even whether the narrative itself is a fair presentation of what the subject is about. Now, I'm sure that the narrative that we have in our country, in Australia, is a little bit different from perhaps in America or the UK or Europe, but how about the narrative in North Korea or China or Russia or Saudi Arabia? The narrative is different because they are framing the subject differently to influence people's behaviour, how they see the world how they interpret it, and how they react and live in this world. When I was doing my higher school certificate, I remember we had to read George Orwell's famous novel, 1984, a very interesting book. In it, he describes a dystopian future where all citizens are manipulated by a single party through the control of the media. And so the main protagonist, a character main Winston Smith, he worked at the Ministry of Truth, where his job was to go back through the old newspapers and change what they said so that they matched up with current government policy. And so the little famous saying in the book is this, is that he who controls the past controls the future, he who controls the present controls the past. nice set of circular um, arguments. While it's a work of fiction, it seems to describe how those who have power and influence always seek to control the narrative. By controlling the narrative, we can, or they can, control the world. And It's not too difficult to see how the official narrative in earlier times was controlled, perhaps back in the Dark Ages when the Church was in charge and it controlled People's concept of morality, of right and wrong, how to worship God, what to believe, how to approach God, how to serve God. It steered the public's opinion in beliefs such as uh, in various subjects. For instance, the immortal soul, whether you went to heaven or hell when you died, um, whether Jesus was God or, or, or any number of subjects, or whether the church was the only way to approach God. Our society isn't too far different from that. Modern society is influenced by a narrative that we are constantly fed. The same can be said of the narrative that comes from the philosophy departments, the science departments um, of various universities. And so controlling the narrative and directing the narrative has always been the province of the educated class and those with power, who use that system to control and frame the narrative. Now, the reason we mention this is that we may not be as free-thinking and as independent in our thinking and our opinions as we sometimes think. So the obvious question is, whose narrative have I adopted? Have you and I adopted Where does it come from? How do we see the world and who has framed that narrative? Does it come from God or does it come from clever people? So let's sum up where we're looking at so far. We've touched on just two main ideas. There are many others, of course, but these are two main ideas. Number one, there are objective truths and there are subjective truths. We can think of some ex- examples of that. For instance, the sin of the golden calf when Israel was at Mount Sinai, when Israel said, These are your gods of Israel which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Objective or subjective? It was just an opinion, wasn't it? It was wrong. Another one. Jesus says this to the Jewish teachers of his day. He says that they were making the word of God of none effect through your traditions They had turned their traditions into objective truths that had to be kept to please God. They had confused these ideas. And of course the uh, one in Colossians where Paul warns about the philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men that some were introducing into the household of God. How about controlling the narrative? Are there examples of this in the scripture? There's lots. In fact, there's so many, one can barely number them all. For instance, the serpent in the garden. What was his rationale? He framed a narrative and his narrative persuaded Eve to do what she shouldn't do. What was the basis of his narrative? His narrative was that God was holding them back from reaching their full potential That's what he was saying. If you do this, you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. There was the false narrative that Paul, that made a a false accusation brought against Paul that he had brought Gentiles into the temple, which incited a a riot and violence against him in Acts chapter 21. And as the famous one of uh, Tertullus, I suppose that's pronounced his name, or Tertullus, the orator, and his false charge against Paul, when he said, he summed up Paul this way, he was a mover of sedition who profaned the temple, in Acts chapter 24. False narratives, a story to persuade that they might produce a certain result. Now, there's many other factors, as I said, that come into the come into effect here that will affect um, how we interpret the scriptures, what tools we use, um, whether how we discern truth from error, um, right from wrong, from reasonableness, from unreasonables. All of these things will affect us in some way um, and how we interpret the scriptures. Importantly, what makes it particularly difficult is that wrong ideas can be logically framed and rationally argued, and they're very hard to discern what's true and what's not, what's right and what's wrong. They can often even be true in themselves and yet be completely wrong. While this, this is a problem for all of us, it's a particularly difficult problem for those who are confident and articulate who far too often fall into the trap of what's called motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning is, is the way that we can cleverly arrange and select facts and information to fit a conclusion that's already been decided upon. It is a common problem. There's an interesting article here, which I'm going to read a little portion from, from the ABC. 2021, the article's titled, Are Some of Us Destined to Be Dumb, and Is There Anything We Can Do About It? Uh, Quite interesting uh, article. I just want to read a part for you. It's from a book. In fact, it's an interview with a person who wrote a book. Um, And Here's the uh, section I want to read for you. It says, Don't equate IQ with intelligence. We need to discard the widely held belief that a high IQ and rationality go hand in hand, argues David Robson, author of The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. He says while intelligence quotient IQ tests have become the benchmark for smarts, they're highly selective and only measure one's ability for certain kinds of abstract reasoning worst of all they say nothing about a person's common sense when it comes to things like analyzing evidence and thinking about it in a fair even-handed way or looking at it at the news and being able to work out what's true and what's false actually iq is really bad at predicting whether a person can do that kind of thing mr robson tells the abc's rn future tense and individuals with high IQ scores are just as vulnerable to cognitive biases as everyone else. The most important one for me is the idea of motivated reasoning, he says. If you have a hunch or an intuition that something is right and it fits with your overall worldview, then you will only look for the information that supports that point of view. And according to Mr. Robson, when it comes to motivated reasoning the crucial difference between highly intelligent people and the rest of us is that the so-called smart people are simply better at it they have the mental agility that lets them rationalize their points of view in a more convincing way so that you find that so so what you find is that on certain polarized issues more intelligent people become even more polarised. He goes on to write this a little bit later on. It's very interesting because what he's saying is is that the highly intelligent and particularly the articulate are able to reason and rationalise their position in in a more convincing way, but it doesn't make it right. They just have the better communication skills and are able to piece together the argument in a more logical fashion, but it doesn't make it right. And his remedy is this, he says, develop critical thinking skills. One way to increase accountability, David Robson maintains, is that by the promotion of critical thinking skills, basic strategies that help people interrogate all manner of facts and data. If people lack these thinking, critical thinking skills and they are exposed to misinformation, then correcting that mis- misinformation is a really difficult job because once they've latched onto it, they don't want to let it go. Fascinating, I think. Now, equating with this or in parallel with this is the interesting study from 1977 Uh, from Life Science magazine, where they did a study of uh, university professors, and what they found was this, that 94 per cent of university professors rated themselves above average to their peers. That means other university professors. Now, I don't know how good you are at mathematics, but you can only be 50 per cent. So, something's r- desperately wrong with the, many of the educated people. Either those surveyed had a very low opinion of their peers or an inflated opinion of themselves. Either way, as I said, the average can only ever be 50%. This, perhaps in some measure, demonstrates how confidence and education itself can distort our perceptions. Not saying it's universal, but it is a problem and it can distort and affect our ability to see things and analyse evidence and develop our beliefs about reality. It's a common quirk of the human condition. Knowledge produces hubris, and hubris puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, in the words of the Apostle Paul. Now, individually, brothers and sisters, none of us are immune from this problem or this effect and neither were the Corinthians. We just read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul contrasts the preaching of the cross with the wisdom of the world. Where he quotes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And again in verse 29, eventually, ultimately, God confuses their position and their, their worldview by what he's done in Christ Jesus. A man who came in the same nature as us, that he might put to death the very thing that causes the sin in the world. Ultimately, God does this so that, he says in verse 29, so that no flesh shall glory in his presence. No flesh can boast, whether the intelligent, the educated, or just the common person. Now, my suggestion is this regarding seeking to interpret and understanding the Scriptures. There are certain things that we can do, each one of us, without being too sophisticated. Perhaps the better path is when we hear new ideas or interpretations, we ought to be attentive and respectful without being rude, while at the same time remaining slightly sceptical. Weigh up what's being said and question it. In such situations, we need to apply the critical thinking skills that we should be developing in life. For ourselves, when we study or we seek to interpret scripture, we should ask ourselves questions, such as, is my interpretation true to the context of the scriptures? Does it involve assumptions, exaggerations, Omissions? Is it my personal preference? Does it involve motivated reasoning? I've latched onto something and I'm going to direct the evidence towards that conclusion. Now, all of those things I think are disastrous because, in the end, whatever is our subjective opinion can be the thing that we can be working towards and we can arrange the evidence to prove the point. And I'm sure that there are many things that have been accepted in mainstream society and perhaps in many religious organisations that are the product of this. I particularly like the idea of omissions. You know, when a, a government prosecutor prosecutes somebody, they ask when they present the evidence to support their case, they are supposed to present the exculpatory evidence, that is the evidence that runs counter to the narrative, all of the evidence, although that doesn't Always happen, unfortunately, because emissions and evidence—something that doesn't quite fit, something that goes in the opposite direction—is important because it may show us that something we've latched onto, in fact, is is actually incorrect, and we may need to rethink our conclusions. Finding the truth. We're talking here about the word of God and being truthful to the scripture is very important. For what we believe influences how we see the world and how we live in the world, how we interact in the world, what part we think that we should be playing in it. And the funny thing is, well, not so much funny, the difficult thing is, is that even small things like seeds can eventually grow into large quite large consequences now there's many many warnings about this at the importance of truth in the scriptures and i'm going to read some of these off for you because i'm sure that you'll be familiar with some of them for instance matthew 7 verse 13 jesus says i'm not going to turn them up i'm just going to read them to you where Jesus says to the Jewish elders of his time, he says, You make the word of none effect, word of God, of none effect through to your traditions, which you have delivered, and many such things, like such things, do you do. What they had done is they put another layer of traditions on top of what the scriptures said, and that became the lens through which they read the Bible, they read the word of God and then put it into practice. And Jesus says you make the word of none effect. It doesn't produce the right result in you. That's what he means. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9. Paul writes, But though we himself or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. In other words, receiving the message as delivered is important. The second Thessalonians 2 verse 11 and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In that chapter Paul is warning about the rise of an anti-Christian system who had come after he'd gone off the scene which would corrupt the truth and corrupt the practices of, that they had received from him and the rest of the apostles. And therefore, because they did that, God would send them a delusion and move them further and further away. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. <clears throat> Peter writes this of Paul, he says, And and. Also in all his, that's Paul's epistles or Paul's letters, he speaks in them of things in which some things are hard to understand. We say that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. In other words, even in their days, people were resting or twisting the scriptures and changing its meaning and intent um, which would bring about the destruction of themselves and those who heard them. So what then is the remedy? What then is the cure? What then is the prototype or the model that we should be following when seeking to understand the scriptures? This idea of truth and reason that we spoke about from Acts chapter 26. Because so far we've only raised questions that challenge us And talk about the importance of rightly discerning the meaning of the word of God. And also some of the warnings and dangers and and typical problems that arise when we seek to understand truth. Well on this positive note there is a more scriptural way to interpret the word of God. Originally Christianity was established in the day of Pentecost. By the apostles who were sent by Jesus, taught by him, sent by him to establish the church or the ecclesia of God in the beginning. It says in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that it was to be based upon what the apostles taught. It's called the Apostles Doctrine and Fellowship. The word doctrine means teaching. It's the apostles' teaching and the fellowship that came from accepting that teaching. They had been with Jesus. They had learnt from him. He had supplementary or subsequently given them the Holy Spirit and sent them out into all the world to take his message to all people, not just Jews but Gentiles as well. And so they become, became the foundation stones, their teachers, teachings did, of the church or the ecclesia as God's house. Therefore we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the household of God was to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So there it is, there's the foundation, quite simple, quite straightforward. It's what Jesus taught, and it's what the apostles taught. The foundation is based upon both what they taught and how they taught and lived. And those who became disciples, which means a follower, a follower of Christ, were those who took this teaching, these teachings, believed them, and then endeavoured to live in the way that that these teachings taught them. You know, we must learn from them to follow in their steps, which includes their methods of interpretation. Context and common sense usually helps us understand the genre of any text. Now, the genre means the type or kind of text that's used Is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it hyperbole? Is it some form of poetry? Usually, most of the time, quite easy to discern. Moreover, the Bible generally communicates in a way that we are familiar with. Usually the ideas are fairly plain with all the variations that we have in our own speech. We use figures all the time. We speak literally, we speak in exaggerations all the time. So we take a very common sense approach to the scriptures. They aren't too hard to understand. The difficulty is is that what we discover may be contrary to the official narrative or the commonly held narrative that we find in society. Importantly, the Bible also uses figures and stories that often hold allegorical or metaphorical meanings, somewhat like the parables of Jesus. Um, So even the law itself is described in that way in the New Testament, as a shadow, as a pattern, as a type of what God would do in Christ. Often I think that it's written that way so that even translation errors can't really hide the message because the story is there, painted in words, and the life events of the individuals recorded. To my way of thinking, the wise path of interpretation is to closely follow Christ's and his apostles' approach to the Scriptures and how they interpreted them. That is, look at how they interpret the scriptures, and if what someone is saying is contrary to that, then be sceptical. Don't accept contrary interpretations. For example, and here's a very obvious one, how do you interpret the early Genesis record? Is it just a myth, or is it real? Does it describe real events? How did Jesus interpret it? How did the apostles interpret it? Did they take it as a myth, or did they take it literally? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, it ought to be fairly clear that they interpreted the word and the record as literal, even though they sometimes also said that it had figurative meanings. For instance, Ephesians 5, verse 32, he says it's a mystery or a secret. It holds another message about the relationship, that is, the relationship between Adam and Eve, as the the relationship between Christ and his church, his ecclesia. He calls that a mystery. Doesn't negate the fact that it's based upon or claims to be fact. Consider how Jesus combines Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to frame his rationale about marriage he applied both references as one event. For instance, Matthew 19, verse 4, he quotes Genesis 2, verse 7. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And again, in the next verse, Matthew 19, verse 5, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh quite clearly Jesus is taking the two references as literal and he's basing a very important principle about marriage and relationships based upon that he's not saying he's not saying that he's referring to some story or myth in the past no matter how you interpret genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 the new testament Jesus himself interprets them literally Paul also interpreted the early Genesis record literally, basing a number of important teachings upon the record. He refers to Adam, to Adam's sin or transgression. He refers to the first woman by name, and he refers to the serpent in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. In my opinion, that's just one example. I'm sure there's many others we could refer to. My opinion, if we hold to the belief that departs too far from Christ and his apostles' approach, which negates or tries to explain away inconvenient Bible facts, then there's something seriously wrong with how we are interpreting Scripture, what approach we are taking. Perhaps we ad- have adopted or been influenced by a narrative that is foreign to the Bible, that has its source with men and not with God. In this age of mass communication through the internet and commentaries and comments and uh, opinions, some sane, some insane, you find on the internet, it's no wonder, brothers and sisters. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people out there who think that the leaders of the world are related to lizards. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there about all sorts of things, about aliens... Uh, Good aliens, bad aliens, this and that. I mean, in the end, you go crazy if you listen to it. So, what purpose then is understanding the Word of God correctly? What purpose is it designed to do? Is it simply to make us in true? To remember, representatives of truth. Is it so that we be right or justified before people? And that they be declared wrong? No, it's none of those things. That's not the primary objective of the truth of God's word and understanding and rightly discerning the scriptures. The purpose of discipleship or the truth in discipleship is to develop the mind of Christ being led and filled with God's spirit. That's the point of discipleship. There are numerous scriptures that speak to this. That is, that these things aren't simply for our intellectual enlightenment that we might pass some course or achieve some goal. They are that God might refashion and reframe our thinking, our behaviour, how we speak, how we see the world, what we hope for, how we behave. That in the New Testament is called the mind of Christ, who is depicted to us as the perfect man, the completion of God's creation, the object that God had in mind from the beginning. Paul writes this in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The idea of sound mind here is picked up in most translations as the idea of discipline and self control. He wants our mind to be fashioned like his, which only comes from hearing and understanding what he has revealed and spoken to us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He writes this, Paul writes this, To whom God would make known what is the riches of his, the glory of this mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us. It's his character, his attitude, his spirit God wants to develop in us. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19, a very interesting reference. Paul writes this, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Paul is depicting himself here as an expectant mother who's about to give birth, but not once, but twice, because these people had fallen away having believed wrong ideas, and Paul is bringing them back again to the truth as it is in Christ. And he says that he's the one who's undergoing pain for them. For what purpose? Until Christ be formed in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if many man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There's the Spirit, brothers and sisters. That's the attitude. That's what we should be working towards. Now, that only comes from rightly discerning the Scriptures. Not in some intellectual way where one needs to uh, perhaps pull out a concordance or learn Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. Not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but getting the sense of what's being said by context, by comparison. Feeling the power of the Word of God and allowing God to work through that medium that we might be changed and shaped into the image of His Son. That we also might be the sons of God in this evil generation. Just by way of conclusion, for those who might understand their historical position on this, this is the introduction to the Bible Companion written by Robert Roberts in 1853. He says Salvation depends upon the assimilation of the, the mind of, to the divine ideas, principles, and affections exhibited in the scriptures much spiritual fructification is only to be realized in connection with the fructifying influence of the spirit of the word now they're not words that we would normally use in this life Um, perhaps old-fashioned words are perhaps a little bit more complicated but the word fructuation or fructification or fructifying means to produce fruit It's, a, 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 I guess, a specialised word. What he's saying is is, is that much spiritual fruitfulness is only to be realised in connection with the fruit-bearing influences of the Spirit of God in the Word of God. And that only comes from hearing the Word and rightly discerning its message and accepting its powerful influence. So I'm going to finish up there, brothers and sisters. Um, we might just turn up one reference. It'll be First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13, and I love this reference, where Paul is speaking about his visit to them, or how they had received the message of First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 12, starting from verse 12. He says that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There is power. In the word it's the vehicle through which god has communicated his will and purpose let's hear that word let's rightly discern it and let's feel its power thank you